This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. Well, hello, I am Gary McGrath, otherwise known as Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And today's guest comes from a small company a few people have heard of. It's three letters, BMW. I think I've heard of that company. Driven a few of those cars. And Jacqueline Jasonowski, we're just going to call her JJ, is with us today. And she worked for many years with BMW in several different positions. And the thing that I've learned from JJ about BMW, it's a very flat organization, which requires the people at the uh, first and second levels to have a tremendous amount of management and leadership skills to not just lead the people that they're responsible for, but to really build teams across the whole organization. So this is going to be fun talking to JJ today about her experiences with BMW so that we might be able to learn something about leading from the front, which is our podcast. So JJ, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Dr. Gary. Thanks for having me. That's great. JJ, tell us a little bit about your background, some of the things that you did for BMW and uh, and what you're doing today. Sure. So I have been basically in automotive for the last 20 years of my life. I know you said I started when I was like five, right? Seven. So Okay. So we'll go with seven. We'll go we'll with go seven. With seven. Yeah, <laughs> we'll go with seven. Right. So I've been in automotive for quite a long time and my journey in automotive started out uh, with BMW. And in those uh, capacities at that organization, I was in human resources. I was the head of staffing for some time. I also worked in training, customer experience, performance management. And during that time there, I took a lot of positions that were across the organization. So BMW headquarters for financial services in Ohio, which is where I started. And in 2008, I took a promotional opportunity to BMW of North America, which is in New Jersey. And once I got to New Jersey, Dr. Gary, I just decided I found my people. Yeah, They, they walk fast, they talk fast, they drive <laughs> fast. And so I stayed put. Well, that, that makes sense. Uh, New York, New Jersey. I lived uh, in Philadelphia for many years and every so often would go across the river there and uh, meet my friends over in Jersey. And you're absolutely right. Uh, there's a there's a culture about that area that you have to just kind of either go with the flow or get out. A hundred percent. And coming from Ohio, I thought there was going to be a bigger transition because everybody is, it's just a little different, right? It's a completely different demeanor. Everybody's a bit more slower paced, but I had always been told, slow down, Jacqueline, slow down. So when I came to Jersey, it all felt just right for me. You just so got the fit right that's in. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So in that transition, going into that uh, job out in New Jersey, uh, what was the job and, and what did you find was 
different about the pace, the speed, and the leadership of that organization different than where you were in Ohio? What was the difference? Yeah, great question. Well, interestingly enough, so in 2008, the opportunity was for the staffing manager position, which like I mentioned was promotion. And it brought me to an opportunity to be able to lead a team in human resources where we were responsible for recruiting and sourcing and placement of positions for the entire country for BMW of North America. So that ranged anywhere from non-exempt positions to department manager positions, so high-level leadership and a little bit of involvement in vice president roles, but typically those individuals were international candidates from BMW of AG, which was in Germany. So they, my boss usually got involved in some of those types of roles. When I first started, you know, I was bright eyed and bushy tailed. I was in early thirties. I had a lot of energy. I was excited about the opportunity and coming from Ohio, the culture there was super open, very friendly. Uh, We worked a lot together. Again, it was a flat organization as well, but it was more of a community feel of leadership and organizational structure. Uh, You didn't, you know, obviously organizations are going to have Um, a little bit of high school in it, but you know, this organization at financial services really didn't. I mean, from my experience, it was, it was great to work there. It was a great culture, a great working environment. And then I fast forward to BMW of North America. And interestingly enough, this was where I had to pull my big girl pants up a little bit, Gary, because it was a bit more cutthroat. It Mm. was, I was faced with individuals that maybe felt a little bit threatened about me coming into the role because I was almost perceived as an outsider, even though I'd been with the organization. And you can imagine being an automotive is it's not always uh, very focused on mixing demographics in the sense that there's not a lot of women in our organization, in our industry. And so the women that I was surrounded by uh, interestingly enough, did not take a liking to me. So they made things really challenging and really difficult right out of the gate. And I had never experienced this before. Uh, coming from Ohio, I had experienced people wanting to help you, wanting to ensure that you were successful together as a team. And in this situation, Gary, I actually... Uh, I almost felt attacked in so many different ways. And it was such a new experience that I had to, I went home at nighttime and I really just thought like, how do I handle this? How do I deal with this? And I even, I sought some consult from my mentors and people in leadership roles that I could trust and know maybe they could advise me on how to manage through these situations. And so it turned out I had to actually come face to face with some of these individuals and let them know that they couldn't treat me or talk to me the way that they were. And I have to tell you, that was probably one of the biggest moments in my career where I grew so much as an, as a person. And so I'm almost grateful for that experience, even though it wasn't something I was excited about in the moment, but it taught me a lot about what to basically how to teach people how to treat me. So talk a little bit about, about that. Cause what you're talking about for any of us in any position is in a new situation, first of all, feeling like an outsider, okay, coming into, and whether you're part of the company or not, you're an outsider, because every single group or team that you're coming into, when you add one person to the team, it changes the dynamics of the team. Now, for you, it was it was a double-edged sword, because you came in with experience with BMW, but the culture was so different that it slapped you right in the face, 100%. and you weren't expecting that. And I'm also going to, I guess, ask the question about it even was surprising for you that the women 
we're not supportive of each other. And we've heard this before, which is unfortunate. So it's like a double negative, not a double-edged sword, but a double negative that you walked into. What were, what were some of the things that your mentors suggested to you about how to stand up for yourself, not just stand up for yourself, but how do you do that in a situation where you're relatively new? Mm -hmm. Well, I think for me, it was important to get out of my emotions and out of my feelings. So in the moment, right, when things are happening, where you find out somebody's talking about you or they're getting your direct reports to get to become against you in those moments. Yes, that happened. Um, in those moments, you can imagine my heart rate rose racing, you know, I felt anxious and nervous. So I knew that I had to back out of those feelings in order to have a dialogue that was uh, even toned, even keeled, and basically on the same footing. So talk to me a little bit about how you did that. How did you yeah. kind of back out of those emotions? Because in the moment, that's very, very difficult. In the moment, 100%, because I wanted to just address it and be like, you can't speak to me that way. But that's not my nature. I'm much more gentle in my demeanor and nature as far as communication. I'm, I am I come from a loving place in, in all my interactions. And so that wasn't my nature. And I knew that if I launched in with my emotions, my message wasn't going to get across because all of a sudden that person was going to be on the defense. They're going to feel attacked. And then we're really not moving forward at all. So I had to remove myself from the situation, go to my happy place, if you will, and thank goodness for meditation. Thank goodness that I have this skill set because I was able to tap into my breath. I was able to tap into centering my mind and get out of the situation and allow myself to calm down to approach it with a level head. You know, it's interesting you should say that. I I always use the example with people at, at an extreme is uh, if a Navy SEAL starts to breathe slowly and deeply, you need to run <laughs> right? because they're calming okay, down right? trying to figure out how they're going to kill you <laughs> and you're in big trouble. So it's the same so kind of true. thing though, because, uh, and, and actually the, the work that we do on emotional intelligence teaches us that the emotional center, our limbic system and the, the logical center, our neocortex, you can't be in both at the same time. Correct. So we have to diffuse that intense emotion so that we can be a little more cognitive in our approach. And I've also said many times that if you really want to get somebody's attention and they've really gotten to you, if you say it really softly, all of a sudden they're leaning in going, <laughs> what are you, what are you saying? I'm saying to stop talking to me like that. Uh -huh. And it, and it changes their demeanor because attacking them just creates a fight, right? Well, yes, because their fight or flight hormones start to flood their body. And it's just, it's exactly the same thing. And I, I, I knew that that wasn't the message and that's not, wasn't what I want, how I wanted to come across, you yeah. know? And so that was some of the feedback from my mentor as well, which is Jacqueline, first of all, you have to stand up for yourself because this is the thing we think other people know how we want to be treated, but they don't, right? And they should know better, but you, if they don't know better, you have to tell them and you have to actually stand up for yourself and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation and give them an opportunity to recognize what's actually happening and allow to hear their response because maybe it is just who they are. It's just how they communicate and allow them to have the opportunity to say, listen, I'm, I'm, I apologize. I didn't recognize that that's what I was doing to you. Yeah, the emotion of that can can really get in our way. And also, I think that just to add to that in our personal lives, the way sometimes in my past, I had talked to my significant other as when my parents were, 
when I was growing up and my parents would have these yelling fights. I mean, you got an Italian and an Irishman and they, they would just yell at each other. And you, you start to think that that's just the way you, you have that conversation. Sure. And then Tell I get married know. and my, my wife says, don't talk to me like that. I'm like, like what? <laughs> you know? Exactly. It's our, it's our, you know, our backgrounds, our experiences yeah. lead into who we are as an adult and how we communicate. But I have to tell you like Gary in those mo- in that moment, I just wanted to crawl under the desk. Like I wanted to be in the fetal position, right? Like, let's not be, let's not, you know, sit, really, we have to go where, what was really happening for me in that particular moment, which was, it was not comfortable whatsoever. And now looking back, it was probably one of the better things that happened to me because it n- never happened again moving forward, at least with that individual. But also I've been put in situations where I tapped into that experience and reminded myself of what I'm capable of and how to communicate with somebody in those difficult times. Well, as leaders, we we have to put ourselves in these uncomfortable situations. Discomfort is an opportunity to learn. The moment we're discomforted by a situation, we have an opportunity to look at that and say, this doesn't feel right or good to me. What am I doing to help create this? Or what do I need to do to eliminate it? Yeah. And that's interpersonal relationships. Our definition of leadership is the ability to build relationships so we can achieve our goals together with compassion, accountability. It starts with building relationships. And what we know is, is communication styles, backgrounds, emotional intelligence levels, intelligence levels, competencies, all of these things are wrapped up into all kinds of complexities in communicating. And that is at the core of our miscommunication, whatever that might be, And it might not be because the person doesn't like you or doesn't respect you. It's just their style. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you're talking a lot about that um, and and how to react to that because we react emotionally to those things that we're not used to. Like you said, I just want to crawl up under the desk and go into the middle position. Because in that moment, again, like I mentioned before, we talked about the hormones. They're rushing through your body going, get out, get out, get out. And I'm not thinking logically about how to deal with that. Not to mention, I had never experienced that. It was completely brand new. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a learning opportunity for me and getting under the desk. I'm really glad that I didn't do that because that would have looked weird and maybe yeah. it wouldn't have been such a great leadership style, but. <laughs> but it's, it is, a, it's something that we can all relate to in some yes. situation. We're going to remove ourselves. Yes. And a uh, little scientific fact uh, for the listeners and for Jacqueline, if I haven't told you this before, women have eight times more blood flow to the limbic system than men. Eight times. Wow. So that's what that. makes women more emotional. Okay. And the problem for us men is not that women are emotional. It's that we are so inadequately prepared to handle it and to listen, to be able to be more empathetic. And in uh, business situations, we just don't understand it. And we need to. We need to step up and get more mature in the way we interact. And and even though it's an average for women, I've met men that are just as emotional and emotion gets in the way of our ability to communicate effectively. But I've also told people, I've led many sales teams and I've had people that get upset with me and they're like, I'm really sorry, I'm upset. I'm like, no, 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 no. The only reason you're upset is because you care. You know, you care about what's going on. So let's, let's kind of diffuse the emotion and we'll get to solving the problem, but it's okay to be emotional. Mm-hmm. And I did not judge people for their emotion. In fact, I encouraged it in the appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's important about what you just said, Gary, is you 
first of all, you provided a great educational point about the eight times more blood flow to the limbic center. Now, and the reason that this is so important is because if that information isn't known and you're dealing a lot with colleagues who are happen to be female and then some, there's something that happens, you just go to the point where you think, oh, she's just emotional. She must be, you know, that time of the month, whatever it is, you start to put stamping of, you know, what- Judgments. Thank we you. judge. We yeah, judge. We start to judge, yes. And those those judgments don't always come from ourselves. They just come from our environment and what we've been told. So when you start to learn and gain gain factual data to help you understand how to deal with people, it changes your dialogue. It changes the way you communicate. Yeah. And I, so the other thing I, I tell people is you cannot solve an emotional problem with a logical solution. Mm-hmm. So we need to, if it's, if it's intense, we need to step away. We need to diffuse some of that emotion and understand that when it's happening in a lot of cases, it has nothing to do with the situation at hand. It has to do with all kinds of other things in our lives. 85% of all performance problems are because of things outside of work, not because of things in work, mm-hmm. you know, family, health, uh, money, uh, addictions, there's all kinds of reasons. So those emotions come up and sometimes affect our, our, our business lives. And we then lay into somebody because they're being emotional and it's mm-hmm. got nothing to do with work. So when I had a question, cause one of the things that, that interested me about what you said earlier and the role that you had was recruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you learn? I mean, we talk about this and good to great Jim Collins talks about first who, then what, and then why, and, and, and really bring, get the right people on the bus first, the people on the right seats on the bus. Then we can determine what direction the bus is going to go in. So recruiting is like at the core of ev- what everybody talks about. And today, the first step of recruiting is keeping the people you've got, is recruit the people internally and make sure you keep your best people. What did you learn as a leader as you went through that process of recruiting and getting people to come to BMW? Well, I think the first step for me always was to better understand their why. No. Why were they attracted to this position into the organization? And you can imagine the BMW has, is a prestigious name. I mean, I really didn't struggle finding candidates to apply, but I did sometimes struggle finding the right candidates to apply because obviously I've got hundreds to choose from and not all are going to be reached. So those individuals that I do reach, you know, that I do talk to, I want to make sure that they're the right fit for the company. And so my whole philosophy on recruiting wasn't to sit somebody down with a heat lamp on them and drill them (laughs) with questions, you know, like they were being interrogated. My philosophy was, let me get to know you. Let's have a conversation. And everybody would always come into the interview, like sweating bullets. I'd have to give people napkins or whatever, right? Because it's an interview. But then as soon as we started talking, their shoulders would relax. They'd sit back a little bit and it would be more of a discussion. That's when I really got to the root of who that individual was. That's when I really got an opportunity to to connect in with them, learn more about why they put their application in. And, you know, maybe it's because they dreamed of working with this company since they were a little kid and most of them it was. So I had this luxury of giving people the key to their dreams by giving them a job. So I did, I I was very responsible with that opportunity because I felt that it was such a blessing for me to be able to have that chance to see people listen to their stories and give them a chance to have a career that they've always dreamed of. Well, what you're saying is interviewing for values. Yeah. You know, we talk about that. And 
I have to tell you, when I went to work at Procter and Gamble, I was coming out of the army and I had two days of interviews and uh, it was not over overly stressful. I just was me and I did my thing. What was stressful was I was given the offer and I took the job at PNG and then I found out they have a yeah, but hiring policy. And I was like, what's that? And they said, well, you know, the seven people you interviewed with, including the guy that picked you up at the airport. I'm like, yeah, if any of them said, yeah, we we'd hire Gary, but I have a reservation. You didn't get hired. You had to get by all seven people without any intuitive. They, they did it intuitively. If anybody felt that their intuition was, no, we shouldn't hire this guy. You didn't get hired. And I'm like, how the heck did I get hired then? <laughs> I, I was thinking, holy oh, crap. Amazing. I, yeah. So. I love um, that. I mean, we had several rounds, right? You know, they'd have to go through a phone screen. They came and did an in-person interview with me. They did an in-person interview with the manager. And sometimes that manager would bring his or her direct reports in as well. So there were several stages and phases that mm -hmm. we would go through before somebody was actually offered a position. But yeah. it was important for me to know, first of all, too, the culture of that team. Because yeah. if I was going to put somebody in that, that maybe fit the overarching culture of the organization, but not exactly that team, that was going to be a little bit of a struggle. I would have to make sure that the manager knew, you know, maybe what areas I felt were lacking just a little bit and see if they could work with those areas and maybe polish them up a little bit, give them, give that individual some development or whatever that might look like to get them really, you know, jamming out in that particular team. Yeah. Well, most people, we can teach them competencies. What we can't do is change their gut level values. Yes. And if there's not right. an alignment with BMW or PNG or any of the companies that we work with, then we're going to have a problem. So uh, that's great stuff. You had mentioned to me earlier that there was a story you wanted to share with us. I think, uh, I don't, I don't remember if, how that fits, but uh, <laughs> come on, open up. And okay. Tell me. Yeah. This is, um, it's another hard story. Okay. It's one that I faced several years later in that same capacity. And, you know, I, I share these stories not to get down on my past organization because it's nothing to do with the organization. These are all people stories, right? Absolutely. They just happen to be in that organization. So I want to be very clear about that for your listeners. But the story I want to share is just how I overcame another challenge that I was faced with that I had never experienced before that I thought, wow, okay, this must be pre preparing me for something. Now in the staffing manager position, I was also responsible for re relocation and relocation. If you can imagine policies around that highly refuted because when people are moving internationally or local or domestically, it always ends up that it's more expensive than they thought. And we had a policy in place that covered so many of those expenses, but there were times where it, it wouldn't cover everything. And so I'd get phone calls from employees, especially like this particular situation, saying to me, Jacqueline, I, I need a, a policy edit or an amendment. Can you go to the board? Which any policy change, I'd have to go to our executive board and get uh, get approval for that. So it was a big deal. I didn't take those lightly. Well, this particular situation, same situation happened where an employee came to me and said, I, I want a, a policy change. And I pushed back and said, no, I stood firm because it was like, when you do something for one, you must entertain it for all. And I knew this would open up a can of worms. Well, that individual got to my boss. So that individual and my boss and myself, we all came together to have a meeting. 
And we, there had been a lot of background on this, a lot of weeks and weeks of discussion and whatnot. So this employee comes into my boss's office and with myself and starts, we have this discussion. And my boss said to the employee after he made his plea about wanting the policy edit, listen, man, I don't know what to tell you. She's the HR bitch in charge. So, you know, whatever she says goes. Wow. Yeah. So what did you do with that? (laughs) Yeah. Gary, let's just say you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Yeah. It was if all of the air had been sucked out of the office and my, my heart just fell in my stomach. Yeah. Because a couple of things happen. For me, lack of mutual respect, lack of respect, period. He went against my authority and my role to another employee who'd been pushing and pushing and pushing. And it created such a contentious environment in that particular moment where between these two individuals, I don't know if they recognized how impactful that moment was for me. Well, how could you even think straight at that point? I, I couldn't. I, no. I, I literally, I could. I almost felt like I was, in, I was being punked. Have you seen that? Remember that show with Ashton Kutcher? Uh, I'd never. Oh, okay. Yeah. You got to look up punked. Basically, (laughs) goes in and they totally punk people. They do these crazy, insane jokes on people. And I thought, this isn't my reality right now. I am. What did you do? What did you do? I got really quiet. So in moments like this, I don't push back right away because I'm more reflective and Mm -hmm. I I choose to respond, not react in my situations. And so I I got quiet because quite frankly, Gary, I didn't even know where to go with this. I didn't know how to overcome this. I'd never experienced something like this. And I just got quiet. And so did, so did the other gentleman, the employee, I think also his mind was blown because he had never experienced something like that. And the conversation came to somewhat of a close pretty quickly. Nothing really resolved except for the fact that the policy was going to stay because I'm the HR bitch in charge. And, um, so we, we left the room and I immediately went to a colleague and explain what happened. And you can imagine Jaws hit the ground and they're like, wow, this is unacceptable on multiple levels. So I took the whole day, that morning, well, that meeting was in the morning. I took the entire day to get my head right, to get some feedback from that colleague who I happen to respect had been in the industry for a very long time in HR specifically. Uh, And at the end of the day, I walked back into my boss's office and I closed the door and he was looked up at me like, oh, okay, we're closing the door, right? Didn't even ask. And I sat down and I said, I need to explain to you um, how that made me feel this morning. And this is what went down as you said those words. And this is what's going to happen in the future, which is I won't tolerate that ever again. It's completely unacceptable. It's not appropriate being in human resources and having such a responsibility to our employees. Um, but also I need to know that you got my back. And saying those kinds of words discredited me immensely. And I work very hard for my career. And I work very hard to be authentic and with integrity and all of those things that I think make a strong HR representative. And I, my message was clear. It was heard. And it, of course, never happened again. So what was his response to that, though? What, how did he respond? I think he didn't probably expect me 
to come up and talk to him directly, the the boss in charge, right? Who'd been in the organization for years and years and years. I think it, it was maybe a joke in his eyes until I sat down and then he knew I meant business. His yeah. facial expressions changed. I can tell he was visibly uncomfortable. Um, he took responsibility, apologized, and said it would never happen again. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he meant it as a joke. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Well, JJ, Jacqueline, Jasonowski, it's been such a pleasure listening to your stories of, uh, of discomfort and uh, disrespect. It's really awesome. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> it's made me this strong, badass coach that I am today. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we learn from those things sometimes that are the most difficult in our lives. If we can be resilient enough to learn from those um, it just makes all the difference. So listen, I really appreciate your time and, uh, your stories. This is fantastic. Really enjoyed listening to you and your experience. And I know our listeners have learned a few things today about, uh, how to overcome discomfort and be resilient. So thank I you, thank Gary. you very so much. much yeah, I appreciate it. I am Dr. Gary making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And this is leading from the front. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit petercats.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.